Well, good evening. Thank you. <laughs> well, I am actually uh, rather delighted. Uh, I am uh, really quite excited uh, because uh, we get to embark again on Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at uh, a number of texts, uh, as we've already had a few of them read out to us. Uh, but before I start, let me ask you uh, a question. Have, have there ever been times when you have been reading your Bible, you've been looking at the text, and you have read a text that presents something so strange that you are left scratching your head a little? It wouldn't be unusual to have occasions where we suddenly become aware of something of a, of a gap, particularly a cultural gap between much of the Old Testament and our lives today. Now, sometimes it can be, uh, as we were, were listening to, to the reading, sometimes it can be when two men swap clothes, as we read in 1 Samuel 18. It could be the, the idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ, as we heard in John 6. Uh, perhaps we are left perplexed when we read about someone cutting up animals in half, which is going to be our text this evening. In fact, uh, when we look at this, we see a cultural practice which may at first be quite perplexing, but hopefully by the end of the evening uh, will be seen to be quite wondrous. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, or if you wish to, to look at the screen behind me, please turn to Genesis 15. We're going to read <clears throat> from verse 1 all the way through to the end in verse 21. <clears throat> and this is what it says. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? They said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. Uh, now, this is a fascinating te- uh, text with rather significant implications. Um, but it is a text which contains a ritual which can seem rather strange to us here in Aberdeen in the 21st century. For here we have a promise made to Abram. And it is a promise that is done in a binding, unbreakable covenant. It is done in a covenant of blood. Now, when we understand what's going on in this practice, in this ancient rite, we begin to grasp an awful lot more about the nature of Almighty God and what he is actually willing to do. When we understand what is going on, we see Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, But in order to get the full impact of it, uh, let me first of all talk about the context of this chapter of Genesis 15. You see, in the previous chapter, Abram uh, got rather involved in the violent politics of the region. His nephew Lot had been taken captive by a mighty coalition of kings. The nations listed are terrifying. For we have the king of Alam, uh, which is mostly modern-day Iran. Uh, it was a nation of great significance, and it's listed first in the list of nations. Uh, after that, we have Shinar, which is uh, early Babylon, the king of Cyprus, the king of the Goim, which we think is a, a reference to the emerging Hittites, another mighty nation. And in actual fact, outside of Egypt, there are no more powerful kings. These are the most powerful people in the world. And Abram has made an enemy of each and every one of them. You see, Lot, his nephew, had been living in Sodom when these kings raided. And when they came, they captured the people, they captured all this wealth, and on they went, also sacking the neighboring Gomorrah. Upon hearing this, Abram uh, decides to go out with a small band of men and ambush these armies, uh, though it was very late at night and they were probably celebrating. Nonetheless, it was quite a remarkable thing to do. And Abram brings back these captives, brings back the people, brings back the wealth and returns, to the, returns them to the cities. Now, by right, by law, as it were, of the time, he was now the owner of these people. He was the owner of the great wealth that had been amassed. But he returns the people, and he returns the riches, what was rightfully his, because he says that he would not have it known that these cities made Abram rich, but rather Yahweh, the owner of heaven and earth, was the one that blesses Abram. And that's what we have just in chapter 14 in the the run-up to the chapter that we read. And so that's what makes the opening verse of our text so spectacular, so important. Abram, who's made these very powerful enemies, has a God who says, Abram, do not fear, I am your shield. What a sense of relief (laughs) must have come with that statement. Abram has also relinquished his claim on vast treasures and all for the glory of God. And so we see here the Lord saying to Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. All of which prompts Abram to ask 
for what he considers the greatest reward, the thing which is most important to him. He immediately seeks to receive, through the miraculous intervention of God, an heir, a child of his own, to see the child of promise, the child that would in turn have another one and another, all the way down, all through the generations. So that Abraham will have Isaac, and Isaac will have Jacob, and Jacob will have Judah, and so on and so forth, all the way through to that child born many generations down in Jesus Christ. Abram is asking for this great reward. He's saying, let us take that first step on your great mission to save the nations. And in response, God promises them this child. That's what we see in verse 6. God says, I'll do it. And Abram believes. He believes. And it's from that position of faith, believing what God says, that Abram says that an agreement be made to make it sure. A binding agreement. And so Abram, as per the customs of the time, is looking for God to make this covenant with him. And we have, therefore, the most binding of all covenants, the covenant of blood. It's a covenant made between God and Abram, a binding agreement that has all the trappings of the customs common to that time and place. The point of the ritual is that by verse 13, we see God saying to Abram, by this, you can know for certain. In other words, because of the covenant that had been made, there is certainty that God will do what he said he will do. Now, most of us will be aware that the Bible is divided into the Old and New Testaments. It comes from the Latin word testamentum, uh, which itself means covenant. Uh, covenants are a key theme that runs through the Bible, uh, uh, even into the division of the book. Um, we're told that there is this Old Covenant and the New, although to be more accurate and to avoid any confusion, it would be better understood as the, the Old Covenant that is renewed rather than new, as if it is old and obsolete and maybe God just got it wrong the first time and thought, well, we can do better than this, we'll have a new one. That would not be what was intended. But rather that the old one was refurbished and made renewed, suitable for the purposes that it was always intent to do. And so that's what we have in Luke 22:20, 20, when Jesus takes a cup of the wine after eating, declares that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Greek term, kainos, used here is better understood as renewed or refreshed. It's not separate from what went before, but rather Christ is breathing life into what already existed. The skeleton that was already there, Jesus brings to wonderful life. And now a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. Uh, covenant uh, in the Bible comes from the, the Hebrew, berith, or the Greek word, diathike, and it literally means to cut. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because the most serious of all covenants, the most binding of all agreements, was done in blood. It was accompanied with the shedding of blood. A blood covenant was the most serious undertaking you could have because it was a bond that held you until your last breath. Now, to be fair, in the Old Testament, there are lots of types of covenants, lots of symbolic things which go on, which may appear slightly confusing. <coughs> now, the most common one was one that was read out for us earlier on between Jonathan and David. 
You see, quite often uh, in the making of a covenant, a very common custom was to take off your coat and to hand over your coat to the person that you're making this covenant with. There's a significant symbolism in this transfer of clothing. Um, in, In handing over, you're saying, I'm giving you myself. Not just a jacket. You're saying, I give myself to you. And this was very often followed up by the second piece of clothing, which was a belt. Now, you'll appreciate that back then the belt was not really for holding up trousers. Uh, It was there to hold your weapons. And so, uh, as you hand it over, it's deeply symbolic because you're saying, all of my strength, all uh, for your protection, for your support, as you hand over that belt. When I hand over my belt, I'm saying that all of my strength, all of my ability to fight is yours. If any should attack you, I will be there. Because if they attack you, they attack me. Your battles are my battles. I will fight alongside you and defend you from all others. And that's what we saw in uh, 1 Samuel 18. Uh, between Jonathan and David. So uh, verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Seems a bit odd until you realize the magnitude of what is being promised. Some of you may well have been sad thinking, what on earth is going on there? (laughs) But the two of them are taking a serious covenant. We have an agreement between David, that young, giant-slaying hero, and Jonathan, uh, the son of the king, the crown prince. And they make a covenant, a lifelong agreement. An agreement until their very last breath. And it goes beyond just the pair of them. Uh, It includes all of their descendants, which is exactly what happens in the life of David later on. You see, Jonathan has a son by the name of Mephibosheth, And when he's just five years old, this young boy loses his grandfather, the king, and his father, the crown prince. And David, who is to be the next king, well, he's expected to act just like everybody else in the region. He's expected to act just like any other new king in the ancient Near East. And the normal thing, the thing that was just taken for granted, would be that that new king would come in and would kill every other possible claimant for the throne sweep them all away, securing his own line for the future. Now, this annihilation was so commonplace that people just start killing the royal family uh, even before David gets there. That They're wanting to to please David. They want to carry favor with David. And so they go around killing as much of the royal family as they can because it's what you do. And there is panic. The nurse of Mephibosheth grabs him and in her haste she drops him and injures him Uh, damaging uh, his leg so that he will never be able to walk. And she runs away and she hides the boy. And over time he grows into a young man. He lives his life in hiding. He believes his life is at risk. His two useless legs act as a reminder of the danger of David who is looking for him. A man who should want him dead And so for years, he doesn't live in a palace or in comfort, but as a fugitive, unaware that his father and David had made a covenant. And that changed everything. 
Later on in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9, David, he's seeking out any living descendants of Saul. And of course, everyone he approaches just goes silent because they imagine that he wants to do them harm. But these things always get out eventually. And so eventually someone does tip him off as to where Mephibosheth is hiding. And so David sends in the chariots. And now as a young man, Mephibosheth sees them. He's all full of fear. All of his fears about David seem to be coming true as his men come for him and take him to the palace. He imagines that this vengeful king will finally eliminate the threat. And of course, the twist in the tale is Mephibosheth. He falls on his face and pleads for mercy, and yet there is no need. David tells him not to be afraid. He tells him, that the reason that Mephibosheth is there is simply to allow David to show him kindness because of the covenant that he had with his father, Jonathan. So his life on the run is over. Everything that David has is his. Mephibosheth is invited to live in the palace, to eat at David's table, to have his family lands returned to him, to live in safety and security for all the generations that would follow. That's what it meant when Jonathan and David swapped clothes. This is what it means, these young men, this binding agreement, the covenant that is being made, and the significant ramifications it's going to have for generations to follow. And so something which might seem a little bit odd is actually remarkably beautiful. You know, when we read of a God who dressed Adam and Eve, who is said to provide the robes of salvation and righteousness first to the priests and then the wider nation and then eventually to us. Uh, When we see this similar thing taking place at the hand of God, when we read in Isaiah and Ezekiel of a God who would come and clothe us, we're not just simply to see that this is a, a vague symbol of our salvation. This is a promise of covenant. This is about a relationship with God. And very often it's equated to something like uh, the marriage covenant. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul shall exalt in the God of gods, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. When we are told that God clothes us, we don't just see simple, we don't just see a symbol of the work of God in us, but it's a symbol of the covenant between us. That binding agreement that reached out, though we were like Mephibosheth, we were lame and destitute and on the run, though we considered ourselves enemies of God, still he reached out, elevated us to the status of a prince, clothed us and feeds us from the table of the king. And so the the symbolic (laughs) rituals and the covenants might seem odd to us, a bit strange, but they point to something remarkable and something beautiful. And there are many, many, many different customs. I want to go through a few of them, uh, aside from the clothes swapping. There's not too many uh, that I can go into for time, but bear with me. Sometimes it's as simple as just making an oath in front of witnesses, such as the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech or Jacob and Laban. Uh, Sometimes there'll be a memorial stone to the covenant that they are making. 
But one common one was to have a memorial feast or meal. Um, so Isaac and Abimelech, uh, later uh, Jacob and Laban, uh, when they come to a solemn agreement that was to be binding, they have a feast to celebrate. And it was quite symbolic. It was the, the custom of the region. And the custom in particular was that each party would serve the other. Symbolically, as you ate the food uh, that was handed and reciprocated in turn, uh, you were supposed to be eating, as it were, something of the essence of that person. You were taking something of that person with you, and the two of you would go changed and united and bonded from that point. I think the closest equivalent today, uh, in, I've seen it in some weddings, um, afterwards, you know, you've got the, the, this, this cake, this usually very beautiful cake at some point, and the bride and groom, they go up kind of awkwardly, the large and rather sharp knife, and uh, they know the very first test of their marriage, you know, they both put their hand on that knife and they cut it. But what is quite common afterwards, as you see in, in some weddings, is they'll take a slice and they'll feed it to the other person. And the symbolism of that was basically as you feed that cake to that person, they are supposed to be symbolically taking something of you into themselves. A beautiful bonding sort of thing. And that's the closest equivalent we have nowadays. But of course, when we remember the words of Jesus in our reading from John 6, and we hear him speaking of eating the flesh and drinking the blood, it's not just a metaphor that's going on. It goes beyond a vague symbol, and it points not just to his death, not just to the, to the body and, and the, the blood. It points to the idea of us taking something of himself into us in that binding covenant. So he lives within us. As I said, there's many different customs and covenant makings, uh, as I've mentioned. Uh, but uh, the biggest ones, the most serious ones, always involved blood, some sort of cutting. Uh, one common practice, um, not just restricted to the ancient Near East, uh, was that uh, both parties would cut their hand. They would cut the palm of their hand, and they would put their hands up against each other. And as the blood dried, there was that idea of the blood mixing, and then they would be you know, uh, marked forever as these people who had taken this blood oath, this blood covenant towards each other. The two lives were supposed to be intertwined. And of course it left this scar, this constant reminder, a permanent mark, uh, reminding you of the responsibilities that had been taken on, but it was also a wonderful symbol to check others. So uh, I'm sure you can imagine being filled with rage and thinking, right, Ian, I'm, 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 we're going to come for you. I'm going to get uh, all of my weapons ready. I'm going to come for you. And as you come, I hold up my hand, and there's this scar on my hand. And you'd be left thinking, uh-huh. So who is with him? And it serves to check you, at least for a moment, because there is somebody out there who has promised to be there, who has promised to come to my aid. It's a warning. If you're going to take a chance with me, you have to take a chance with my covenant partner as well. And that is actually what we read about in Isaiah 49, when God explains why he cannot forget his people. So from verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have carved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That wonderful idea of God saying, I can't forget you. We have this covenant together. 
We are intertwined together. How, how could I forget you? There's a scar on my hand. And he even says, there's a greater chance of that nursing mother forgetting her child than for me to forget my children. Now, in, in the Isaiah context, this is a symbol. This is a, a, a picture, as it were. This wonderful idea of this, this, this scar that is shared, that, you know, that, that means that the covenant is there. What I find uh, remarkable later on is that very thing, that very verse about the idea of it being carved into his hand becomes literal. The cut of the covenant becomes all too real when the covenant is indeed carved into the hands of God at Calvary. So you'll appreciate there are a lot of strange customs. Each of them are remarkable and beautiful, and they say so much. And so when we come to Genesis 15, we have another symbolic action. It can seem a bit strange. So as was common at the time, Abram takes the cutting of the covenant very literally, and so he takes a cow and a goat and a ram, and he proceeds to split them in two, as we saw in verses uh, 9 and 10. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now the custom of the time would be that you'd cut these animals in half. And the two people involved in the covenant would start in the middle, in the middle of all these uh, eviscerated animals. And you'd start off back to back and you'd go in the opposite directions, but you'd go in a big circle of eight so you come back facing each other, walking through these carcasses, walking through these ripped up creatures. It's a very serious undertaking. In the presence of all this death, we are saying, this agreement will last until my death. But it is more than that. By making this covenant and making it before God, we're saying, let the same happen to me if the covenant is broken. It's quite a common custom. Uh, the custom is referred to again in, in Jeremiah 34, but with a rather ominous tone. Verse 18, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and of all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. What happened in Jeremiah was these men, they walked through, they took the consequences on themselves for breaking the covenant. And then having rejected the covenant, these men's blood was to be expected. It was on their own heads and they were going to reap the consequences. That is why it is so striking that we have here in Genesis something different. Because Abram was not allowed to walk between the pieces. God, God alone takes that lonely walk between the broken creatures. He's saying, yeah, let this happen to me. Let my blood be spilled, my body broken, if the covenant is broken. God was not willing for Abram and his descendants to be liable because God knew what we're like. God knew that the covenant would be broken. He was not willing for the price to be on them, but for the price to be on himself. That's what it meant for God to make a covenant with Abram. 
It's not just simply a nice promise, you're going to have a child. It's not just simply God fulfilling the the needs and desires of someone he would call a friend. We have the guarantee here that when the covenant is broken, God himself will pay the price. What we have amidst all this blood and gore is the pledge of God to die. In Genesis 15, we have the clearest promise of the cross. We begin to understand what what price that bruised heel spoken of in the Garden of Eden will be. The blood covenant provides the commitment of God himself to die. So if you are wondering, what does this text have to do with Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? It has everything to do with Jesus Christ Because as God, he will die because man could not keep the covenant. Because man could not pay the price. Now, uh, coincidentally, uh, I also rather enjoy Psalm 121 that we had at the very beginning. It's a beautiful psalm. Let me just remind you of what we heard. I to the hills will lift my eyes from whence doth come mine aid. My safety cometh from the Lord who heaven and earth hath made. It's a metrical version, but it's the one that gets stuck in my head the most. This is incredible when we think about this text in the context of what we're thinking about in Genesis. Here the psalmist looks to the hills because this is where he expects his aid to come from. Uh, Back then, all of the kings would reside up on the hills, uh, overlooking the people. So when you're looking up to the hills, you're looking to the place where aid should come from. In some versions, there's a question mark from whence will come my aid, as if he doesn't know, but he's looking to the hills. He knows where it should come from. But particularly for the man of God who's looking to the hill, because instead of all the palaces and uh, great barracks and things that would be expected in every other country, what resides on the top of the hill is the temple of God. The God of the heavens and earth are coming to the rescue of the psalmist. And so he looks to the hills. But I think we too can sing this song, though with a greater gusto and with a slightly different emphasis. For when we look to the hills, we look to the rescue of God, mindful that that great rescue was done on a hill. There was a cross on that hill, and on that cross there was blood. And that cross, bloodied and beautiful, is a memorial of the covenant paid in full. Which is remarkable. Uh, there are many uh, cultural symbols then that can pass us by. Uh, the grown men swapping clothes, memorial meals, scarred hands, eviscerated animals. And they, each of them points to something binding, something beautiful. Uh, each of them tells us about a covenant being made. And so when God stands knocking on the door of your heart, He is the one with the scar on his hand, a hand that holds on to new clothes that he would give you. He does so offering a memorial meal. He does so having paid the price in full. And so we who take on the role of that wee crippled boy Mephibosheth, we who would be on the run, we who would be haunted by our brokenness, we who have been trying to flee the presence of God for most of our lives, 
we would be rescued. He would adopt us and raise us up and we would live with him. You know, in the Old Testament, to be a friend of somebody is not given lightly. I realize uh, uh, these days that the word friend is somewhat devalued uh, on most uh, social media platforms. You can be friends with many, many people, many of whom you're not really friends with. But in the Old Testament, it is different. To be a friend is someone you are in covenant with. It's not a lightly given title. It's not like today when it's been divested of that incredible significance. When Abraham is described as being a friend of God, it doesn't just simply say that they got on or had some common interests. It's to say that they were in covenant, that their lives were intertwined. It says that God carries a scar on his hand. It says that if anybody thought that they could go against Abraham, well, they had another thing coming. Because there was more to Abraham than met the eye. Because he had a covenant partner that promised to come to his aid. And so as we, as the people of God, as those in covenant with God, we are counted as the friends of God. We are supposed to have lives intertwined with his We have one who will come to our aid. And so when we cast our eyes to the hill, to that cross, to the memorial set on that hill, we know the creator of heaven and earth is coming for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you. We thank you again that you are the one who has paid it all because we couldn't. We thank you that you're the one who took the price upon yourself because you knew that we would need that price paid in full, that we would break the covenant, that we would be a people unreliable, unfaithful. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who comes with that scar on your hand who comes with robes for us to wear, who comes to elevate us to eat from your table, who comes and looks at us and says that we are yours. And Lord, we just simply praise and thank you. And we pray, O Lord, that we would live as people of the covenant, as we, we would live as people with lives intertwined with yours. For all that you have done, we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to give you the glory in all that we do. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name, amen.